0: Hello, you're tuned to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. We're pleased to have you join us.
1: But The mood at that time was you Christians claimed all this would be over, Jesus would return, he would establish his kingdom, and here we are 32 years or so after the event and it hasn't happened.
0: Quite a number of the books of the New Testament of the Bible were written by the Apostle Paul, many of them written as letters to specific people. Paul had a close relationship with a young man named Timothy and we have access to two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy specifically, almost as a father would write to a son. Tonight Dr. Corbett begins a new series sharing with us some of the valuable instruction Paul gave as recorded in the epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy. Let's join Dr. Corbett now for part one in this series, Dear Timothy, Forbid Different Doctrines. Two
1: verses of chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God, our Saviour, and Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Here's the question. What we're hopefully going to see is the relationship between these two men, the Apostle Paul and Timothy. And if I was to say to you or ask you, would you have liked to have had a friendship, relationship, acquaintanceship with the Apostle Paul, I wonder how many men would say, absolutely. I wonder how many women would say the same thing. Because it seems to me that many women have an impression of the Apostle Paul of being someone who didn't like women very much. I don't know. We could have done a survey here tonight to, f- to see what women's responses whether they would have liked the Apostle Paul to have been their pastor or not. This epistle, plus its follow-up, its Second Timothy, which was written not long after this one, which is a kind of unusual, and that it would have been separated by months, reveals something of the tenderness of the Apostle Paul for someone who was probably as close to him as anyone on the planet was. His protege, Timothy, whom he calls my true child in the faith. Here's the background to these two epistles. And here's one of the reasons why I think they're so timely and so important. Paul has written this epistle in around about 62 AD. The reason that's significant is because he'd already been taken prisoner and was going to appear before Caesar in Rome at an indetermined date, at Caesar's pleasure it seems. We read in the book of Acts that he was a house prisoner for two years and the book of Acts doesn't end, it just stops. There's no conclusion to the book of Acts, it just stops. So what we have is a mystery. What happened to Paul? So let me tell you what we do know. In 62 AD things were beginning to heat up, heat up in the Greco-Roman world. Nero who was the Caesar at this time became Caesar at the age of 17 and he was probably the most despotic Caesar of all the Caesars. In fact when he died the line of the Caesars ended and he died in 68 AD by suicide. In 62 AD Paul is now a prisoner in Rome. He's almost certainly been taken from house arrest into the Praetorian Guard. Almost certainly. Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem, something was happening as well. There was a rebellion brewing. Jerusalem was divided into the upper city and the lower city. The upper city was where the priestly class, the upper class, were, and it tiered down. and Down here were the, the the working class, so to speak. And there was a lot of tension between the two. That was happening. James, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother of Jesus, was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. We read about him in Acts chapter 15 where he presided over the very first church council, which is the decision when all the church leaders come together and they decided on a very, very important issue and that is what does it take to be saved? What does it take to become a Christian? Do you have to become a Jew first and then become a Christian Or can you be a Gentile and just skip the whole Jew bit and become a Christian? Now we might think that's ridiculous, how could they ever think that? But they did. And so what what happened was that when that decision was made, headed by James, very early on, probably around about 45 AD or so, we have James gaining prominence in the city of Jerusalem. He has written his epistle, we, we already had that, it was probably written quite early, probably sometime around about the time of that council meeting recorded in Acts 15. But there was a big prophecy hanging over Christians, a huge prophecy, and it's called the Olivet Discourse. It's mentioned in Matthew chapter 24, it's mentioned in Luke chapter 21 and people were were saying the reason we're, we're going to leave Christianity these are Jews the reason we're going to leave Christianity is because that prophecy hasn't been fulfilled and Jesus said it would be. So someone wrote to these Jews we don't know who it was but we have what they wrote it's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. Meanwhile James the brother of Jesus is defending the very plain statements by Jesus, that within the lifetime of his audience, there would be something cataclysmic that would happen. And the big thing that offended the Jewish audience, especially the people in the upper city, was that Jesus said, remember what he said about the temple? It would be destroyed brick upon brick, stone upon stone. It would be torn down. And it got to the point where James was defending it. And at that the leaders in the upper city could handle it no more. They got James. They took him to the top of the temple, the pinnacle of the temple. And they said in front of the the crowd that had assembled for this verdict, this judgment, "Recant, recant your commitment that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, Jesus, sorry, was the Messiah, your brother, recant that his prophecies about the fate of the temple and the fate of the Jewish nation, recant them, and he refused. In fact, two historians tell us, one of them is Josephus, tells us that he seized the opportunity, the highest vantage point in Jerusalem, the top of the temple. And he proclaimed, Jesus Christ is Lord and he is coming. And with that, verdict was passed. And the priests, the leaders of the temple, flung him from the top of the temple. And he died. The other historian says that something remarkable happened. He died, the crowd assembled, yay, he's dead. And this other historian says, he then stood to his feet and said, Jesus is Lord and he is coming soon. And with that, this historian tells us he was stoned to death. That's 62 AD. That tells us the Climate of what's happening now. Paul is in prison. The, his first epistle from First Timothy, almost certainly, probably, he's in house arrest, as we read in the end of Acts, and by Second Timothy, as we'll see, as we go through this, it seems that he's been taken under Praetorian guard. So he knew something was about to happen. But the mood at that time was you Christians claimed all this would be over, Jesus would return, he would establish his kingdom, and here we are 32 years or so after the event and it hasn't happened, which is why the epistle to the Hebrews was written. And so there are now believers in different parts of the world who are beginning to think, maybe this Christianity thing's not all that we thought it was. So Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy, to address several issues that have got to, hap- got to be dealt with. Let's rush ahead in the story, 62 AD. By the time he writes 1 Timothy, he's expecting he'll be released. He'll get out of, he'll get out of house arrest, he'll stand before Caesar, everything will be fine he will have witnessed to caesar as jesus had told him he would in acts chapter 9 you remember he says you'll stand before kings and in that day the jews referred to caesar as king you'll see that in john chapter 18 verse 36 you remember when pilate brought out jesus and said do you want your king and they said we have no king but Caesar so hold that thought as you read 1st Timothy when Paul urges the believers in Ephesus which is where Timothy is to pray for the king hmm what else do we see in 1st Timothy that riles people he tells women to be quiet in church can you see why (laughs) some women would find Paul to be Hard to get along with. In another part of of, uh, his epistles to Timothy, he says that women will be saved by bearing children. Hmm. Does he? Is that what he's saying? It sounds odd. It really sounds odd. In looking at this, these two epistles, I want you to see these are the last recorded words of Paul. The last thing he said. And he's wanting to address... A couple of issues that need to be addressed. And one of them is this whole concept of is Christianity true? Is it true? Jesus hasn't come back. The world hasn't ended as some thought it would when that was to happen. The kingdom hasn't been established, and the Jews had a concept of the kingdom. It hadn't happened. And so now Paul is writing. To Timothy and I, f- I actually find this quite tender because in 1st Timothy there's clear indications that Paul thought he would be released and then as it appears he's been moved to the Praetorian Guard and there's really only one reason you'd be moved to the Praetorian Guard pending your execution. As we go ahead in the story that is exactly what happened in A.D. 64, Paul was brought before Caesar Nero. We don't know what happened. We don't know the exchange. But I know, based on what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus, that he would have borne witness to Christ before Caesar. And I think in one respect for Paul, mission completed. Mission completed. Here's what I take from that exchange, and I haven't even told you what the exchange is was because I don't know what the exchange was no one knows what that exchange was but Caesar did not repent you know that we spent several years looking at the prophecies and the person and the life of Jeremiah he preached during the reign he prophesied during the reign of four kings of Judah none of them repented and Judah suffered because of it what does that tell us about being faithful to the Lord as a church tonight we prayed for the lost In fact, over the 25 and a half years that I've been here, pretty much every Sunday we've prayed for the lost. Have we seen the lost, those who don't know Christ, those who are living a life that perpetuates their brokenness, have we seen them come in and surrender their lives to Christ? The answer, occasionally. Have we seen what we would like to see of that prayer being answered? Not yet. But are we called... To be faithful despite that and here's the answer if you're wondering if you're still thinking about the answer yes (laughs) yes we are chuck colson the lawyer to president nixon who was a party to the watergate scandal which was where the democrat party headquarters was who authorized the break-in of the watergate hotel to steal the The campaign strategy of the Democrats, you might remember that if you're around in the 70s. I remember my grandfather telling me about it. Chuck Colson was jailed. President Nixon was impeached. And Chuck Colson was a hard-nosed, hard-drinking, chain-smoking lawyer. And in prison, he met Christ. If you've ever seen the movie based on that part of his life someone gave him a bible just as he came into prison and he had it on his bedside table there in the the dorm of the prison ward and someone said what's that he said oh it's a bible oh that's all right i thought it was something someone would want to something someone would want to steal in with a whole bunch of prisoners the funny thing in that movie is that as he began to read it he came to christ and he shared his faith with others and other prisoners became Christians as well. And that first prisoner comes up to him and says, you probably want to hide that Bible now. <laughs> Someone might steal it because they become a Christian. It was a funny moment in the movie. Chuck Holson had on his desk, after he had been released from prison, faithfulness, not success. And I think that should be our goal too. Faithfulness, not success. Last Friday, or Friday week ago, I had what I call, what I consider to be an 11th hour meeting with our Premier. I had half an hour of his time where I pleaded with him to move some amendments to the Voluntary Assisted Dying Bill. He gave me a hearing, he said he understood my request. He could see why I was making it. He understood why I was making it. And then came the deliberations and the vote by the Tasmanian Parliament and no amendments were passed. I wasn't successful. But one day, I hope I'm going to hear God say, and I hope you do as well, well done, good and faithful servant. And I'm probably going to be way back in the line when I hear it said of the Apostle Paul and way before him I'll hear it said of Jeremiah. And please, I'm not saying I'm in that line of servants. But I hope we're all in that same line. Be faithful. We can't always ensure our success. And it might have looked like Paul met his death in 64 AD and that was well, he really failed in converting the Caesar. He failed. And as we'll see, and you'll see in First uh, Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, 2 and 3, he, he says, pray for the king. And at that time, there was only one king, and that was the Caesar. So it's an amazing thing. The other thing we find Paul saying about Timothy is that his faith was the result of the work of two women. Anyone know the names of the two women? They're easy names to remember. Lois and Eunice. And uh, we we had that mother and daughter in our own church. And so we begin to get a glimpse of how Paul regarded women. Not in this hard-nosed sense. Denise mentioned tonight that Mary sat at the feet of Jesus and was taught by him. And she alluded to the fact that in that culture, women were not generally taught. Sometimes we focus on the could a woman preach, could the woman teach, which the New Testament gives us examples of. But let's back up the truck a bit and realise the fact that women could attend church and be taught the Word of God in the company of men was huge. And Paul instructs how it's to be done. Absolutely huge. Consider that when Paul, and I mentioned it in this morning's message, that when Paul gives the qualifications of an elder in First Timothy chapter 3, He's extolling women. He must be the husband of one wife. And you might think well yeah. But it was a polygamous society. One wife. And he's already said to the Ephesians. That that man is to love his wife. And as I mentioned this morning. Marriages were not based on love. They were usually had some political machinations about them. So here we have Paul telling his true child in the faith, this is what I want you to do. Toward the end of this epistle, he says, but I want you to come to me. I want you to come. And then when he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says, when you come, bring my cloak, my books and my parchments. Why a cloak? Because in a dungeon it would have been really cold. In a place where he was in prison. And he wanted Timothy to come to him just before he died. It's pretty, I, think, I find, just find it really, really tender. What else do we see Paul telling Timothy... In the opening chapter, he tells Timothy to correct those people in the church who had a place of teaching. Now, as much as I've mentioned about the church being a household church, it was actually a collection of household churches. And probably when we talk about the elders of the church, we're talking about each of the householders coming together and Timothy being able to address them. And by the time this epistle was written, it's estimated that the collection of Christians in Ephesus could have been as many as 6,000 Christians. So that's a lot of householders. It's a lot of elders responsible for the church. It's interesting, I, I find it interesting, that for us to go from where we're at to where God wants us to be, the, the, it's just not possible unless... We have a different understanding of what leadership is. In some organisations, leadership looks like this. The pyramid, the boss is at the top, and you go down. But you know, in Christianity, it starts here, and it goes this way. It goes the other way around. Christ is supreme. He's the focus. And down here is where f- the frontline leaders are. And in order for our church to go from that to that, that needs to grow. The numbers, if you're into numbers, and I'm not really into numbers, but I'm told this, that it's possible for one person to know 70 people or so. Jesus told of a shepherd and his sheep. How many sheep did that shepherd have? A hundred. And a hundred sheep, with a hundred sheep, he knew when one was missing. And I'm told by people who study these things... That for every elder or pastor in a church, the ratio is one to a hundred. And for a church to grow its base, more shepherds, more elders or pastors are appointed in that church in order to have the capacity to grow, to be able to care for people. Paul has something to say about that. So, come with me now. This is First Timothy chapter 1 and... Verse 3. We've already looked at the first two verses, and I want you to see this, and also I want you to consider that the church at Ephesus was the most written to church in the New Testament. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Nor, verse 4, to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So the first thing Paul wanted Timothy to do is to gently correct the elders who were teaching things that had drifted away from the truth Of the Christian message. That's the first thing. I wonder how easy it would have been to have picked. I wonder how easy it would have been to have realised that's what had happened and that's what was happening. Don't teach any different doctrine. We might define a doctrine, a doctrine in, in essence is a teaching but it's a teaching about something. It's a teaching about what we are to believe and hopefully if it's good teaching It's why we are to believe it. So you can always tell when you're in a cult, you get half of that equation. What you are to believe. But rarely the why. So to teach pure, sound doctrine, and Paul will refer to it as sound doctrine, down in verse 10, it requires that it agrees with Scripture. It requires that it's accepted by those people who are credible teachers in the church. For us today, we have the privilege of having the 27 books of the New Testament. If someone teaches something that's out of step with what the rest of the New Testament teaches, I hope that we can spot it. I hope that we can spot it. But here's the role of elders, and this is what Paul wanted Timothy to be able to do, because it it seems that that there were some elders who were teaching something that was a little bit off, just a little bit off. But here's the problem of trajectory. When you're supposed to be that way and now you're a little bit off, trajectory says it can end up going way off. So that's why it's important that we're all teachable. We could all be corrected. And so Paul is telling Timothy, correct these elders... That wouldn't have been an easy thing to do especially since Paul says to Timothy and when you do it don't let them despise your youth don't let them despise your youth but correct their teaching Timothy we get an idea of what that teaching was about it says it was about myths endless genealogies and speculation I've said to you before and I hope I was very clear I don't know what Paul said to Caesar Nero. So I'm not even going to speculate. We can guess, but I'm going to tell you it's a guess. I'm not going to claim that this is... I'm not going to do that because we don't know. And if I do that, and I, I want you to hear that I've got some reasons why I might have thought that Paul was faithful right to the end. Paul says to Timothy that, to, that the, the, the aim of doctrine, you notice this in, in verse 5 where he goes on and he says this, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. He goes on verse 6, Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain, which is empty, pointless, Discussion. Verse 7 Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So here's what I hope will happen that in years to come, this church is blessed with people who have an uncanny ability to smell a rat. An uncanny ability to go, that's not quite right. And here's why it's important to get it right. I'll give you an example. If I said to you, Jesus said, love others as you love yourself. Therefore, you should make yourself the highest priority and make sure you love yourself. How many go, well, that makes sense. Or is there anyone who goes, hang on a minute hang on a minute, love others as you love yourself, therefore love yourself. You see, Jesus didn't say that last bit. In fact, Jesus clearly from the context didn't even mean that last bit. In fact, from the context of what Jesus said, he was saying the opposite of that. He was saying the most natural default position we all have is to look after number one. And now I'm saying, start to treat others like that. Don't put yourself first. Don't mishear me. (laughs) Don't think I'm saying, put yourself last and always belittle yourself and don't eat well, exercise well, take care of your spiritual health. I'm not saying that. But when Jesus said, love others as you love yourself, we've got to be really, really careful where he was telling us to place our love. And that's the kind of thing that I hope we get when someone is told you shouldn't do that by an elder or a home group leader or a pastor in our church and their response is don't impose legalism on me I hope you're hearing That's not legalism. When we say you shouldn't talk that way to others, we're not being legalistic. We're offering wisdom from God's word. And the difference is we're not saying that if you keep talking that way, you'll be damned to hell. Because legalism is the idea that if you keep rules, it's the keeping of those rules that will keep you out of hell. We're saying God's word says, you shouldn't talk like that and we're telling you as shepherds what's good for your soul is not to talk like that it's not legalism so don't confuse rules for legalism can you imagine what a game of soccer would be like without rules it would be like watching no i'm not going to fill in the illustration but i was going to go something about girls soccer i'm not going to go there now, I want to come down to verse 8. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So there's the point. There's a difference between rules and legalism. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers verse 10 the sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality this morning i talked about slavery and how the bible does not condone slavery it condemns slavery and here's one of those verses that says that where it says enslavers that is people who trade in human beings enslavers liars perjurers And whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And now, a couple of things. We'll bring this to a close. Paul is telling Timothy, this is what you're to do. This is the first thing you're to do. He'll go on and he'll say, So you need to make sure these elders fit the bill, that they're qualified to be elders. And he'll give a list of what is required. We read through that list this morning. But he's saying, Timothy, our goal here is love, not conflict. Our goal here is sincere faith. Pure, simple, sincere faith. And in one sense, I find First and Second Timothy, in one sense, to be a little bit cold. Because there's not a lot of personal stuff in there. This is Paul telling his protege, I'm concerned for you, Timothy. I'm concerned that these, these leaders at Ephesus will bully you and that they'll mistreat you. I'm concerned for you. So you can imagine getting this epistle. It's in our Bible for a reason. Because when Timothy got it, it would have been read to the Ephesian church. So in essence, it was an epistle meant for the Ephesians. And as we go through this journey, did you notice that list? Did you notice how controversial that list is today? (laughs) Did you know that in Canada, I couldn't have read that out? And you know, I suspect we're heading in the same direction here. And therefore, this epistle
0: is incredibly relevant for where we're As we've heard tonight, Paul's relationship with Timothy was like that of a father to a son. And even writing from prison, Paul took time to instruct and encourage the young man. More from Dr. Corbett next week with part two of Dear Timothy, Wage Good Warfare. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting with you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.